former husband or her deceased husband. And you understand how this works right here? You and I come by faith to Christ and we acknowledge that we're sinners. We acknowledge that there's nothing good in us. We acknowledge that we need a Savior. We acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And that when we stand before a holy God, that we will stand there only because of Christ. Only because of Him. Now, if I drag anything else with it, you know, it would be the same thing as me going home to my wife and saying, I love you, I, I adore you, uh, meet my new girlfriend. <laughs> That's exactly the same thing. Is my wife enough or is she not? Is Christ enough or is he not? And folks, yes, he is. He is. So this is what Paul is saying here. He says, to summarize here, until Christ came, we were bound by the law which Paul compares to a husband from whose liberation might be desirable. And if the husband dies, the obligations to him cease. The law said, obey me or die. We couldn't obey, so we died. Jesus says, believe me and live. So we believe and therefore, we live. And the law is over here saying, hey, don't forget about me. And Jesus is over here saying, I've already taken care of that. Don't worry about what he says. Now, don't get the idea here that we are under no, that we are under no obligation to keep the law. That is not at all what I'm saying or what Paul is saying. But you see, Paul is talking about the written code. Here you obey in order to be saved. Here you obey in order to live. Here you obey and you live because he has done this. And the law now is written on our hearts, Paul told us uh, a few chapters ago. So uh, here Paul says that believers are released or freed from the law. And he says this Five times in the first six verses. So we get the idea that Paul is trying to stress to you and I that we have been freed from the law in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Christ died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he rose, we rose. So just as the wife has no obligation to a deceased husband. We have no obligation to a deceased law. Okay, so we, we need to understand that we trust only in Christ. Uh, in verse 4, Paul alters the metaphor and says that you have died to the law. This, de this death occurs through the body of Christ, he says. Through the death and the life, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul keeps coming back to this time and time and time again. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Christ so essential? 
Why is it so important that I place my faith and trust in Jesus alone and in nothing else? Well, here's why. Because Jesus was born into this world by a virgin. And he was the sinless son of God. He was God in the flesh. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. Jesus never one time in word, thought, or deed ever sinned. Ever. Therefore, that made him the only one who could offer the sacrifice upon the cross. As he took our sin. And he bore our sin. And in bearing our sin, he bore the full wrath of God. Now listen, I think this is something else that Paul is saying right here. When Paul says, when he was talking about how the, the, the wife is no longer under obligation to the husband that has died, we need to understand that when Jesus bore our sin, when he bore the wrath of God, do you know how much there is left for me? None. Do you know how much anger is left for me? None. Jesus bore it all. And so the death, and, but, but they, they took him down from that cross and they buried him. They buried him. Now why, you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that, he says, For I delivered to you that which I, uh, first of all, I knew, which is of first important, that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And I think it's odd that Paul puts in there and he was buried. Why would he put that in there? Well, if you, uh, if you look at throughout history, there's been many who, has, who say that Jesus never actually died. I heard about a, a, a woman one time who went to her pastor and said, Pastor, I was sharing the gospel with my neighbor and he was telling me and trying to explain to me that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. He only swooned on the cross, passed out. And then in the coolness of the tomb, he, 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 he regained consciousness. And that pastor looked at her and he said, Madam, he said, go and gather 40 or 50 men and go get your neighbor. Seize him by force. He said, does he have a beard? And she said, yes, he does. He said, pull it out. Get you a crown of thorns and place it on his head. Take him and strip him down bare naked and tie his hands and beat him with a, a cat of nine tails 39 times. Cat of nine tails has pieces of bone and metal in the end of it that rips the flesh apart. Do you know that the prophet Isaiah tells us that when Jesus went to the cross that he was so disfigured you couldn't tell if he was a man or an animal he said go and do this to your neighbor hang him on a cross for six hours and see if he only passes out or if he dies you see a cross only had one purpose death that's what it means, death. And so Jesus was taken and he was buried. You know, and, and this is the point I was getting at. Because you only bury dead people. But Paul says then that he rose from the dead on the third day. This is what separates Christianity from every religion in the world. The work of Christ liberates us from the law. 
as R.C. Sproul likes to say, we are indeed saved by works. But they're Christ's works, not mine. So since Jesus kept the law and bore the price of disobedience to us in his body, we are not liable to the punishment and condemnation for failing to keep the law. Because one of the things, and, and, and I am so thankful, okay? And folks, let me urge you to please be here next week. <laughs> because Paul is going to write one of the most beautiful things he has ever written. You know what it is? Paul's going to say, hey, I'm just like you. <laughs> I fail and I sin every day. And he's going to tell us why. And I'm so glad he wrote this. All right? But here, uh, Paul, moving beyond the marriage analogy, he states that we now belong to another, for we are united to Christ. But the law is dead to us. So it's okay that we're united to Him. As the Father raised Christ from the dead, He raises us. And we now, He says there in verse 4, are to bear fruit for God. Bearing fruit is the dominant biblical metaphor for a lively, productive faith. Psalm 1, blessed is the man. I'm going to quote it wrong. Let me turn over here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, blessed is the man who does not walk, stand, or sit with the lost and revel in what they do and, and live as the worldly do. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, when he talks about the law of the Lord here in this instance, he's not talking about just the law of God. He's talking about the word of God. Do you have a delight for God's word this morning? Because the more that you walk, uh, stand and sit with the world, the less you will care for God's word. And the less you sit with them, the more you will care. He says, I delight in the law of the Lord and on His law. I meditate day and night. And look what happens because of it. And I am like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And in all that He does, He prospers. This is how we bear fruit. And this is what we are called to do. The blessed man who delights in God's law is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Fruitfulness also entails character. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, self-control, all these things. Patience and kindness, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. These will be the natural thing that comes out of our life when we are united to Christ. In verses 5 and 6, the analogy shifts again and Paul reminds them of their, for, their, their former fruitfulness. Look at verse 5. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Paul reminds them of their formal, former fruitfulness and it is in, it is in, in itself the law neither gives life nor supplies the strength to obey God. The law says obey, but the law cannot help me obey. The law cannot make me obey. It has no power to do any of that, Paul says. Without the Spirit's transforming work, 
we naturally rebel. You know, when Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. And, and we fail, I think, today to understand the importance of being transformed by the living Word of God, by the Spirit of God. And it is only as we are transformed by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, that we have the heart of God. You see... If I walk around saying, I must obey God, or God standing up there with a rolling pin ready to bonk me on the head every time I do wrong, I want to tell you, if God did that, I wouldn't have a head left. By the way, neither would you. But He doesn't do that. I can walk around in confidence before God. I can walk around and say, I obey because I love Him. I obey because of who He is. He is a righteous, holy God. But it's the Spirit's transforming work in my life. And without that, I naturally rebel. Listen, you show me somebody that tells me they're saved. You show me a person that says, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And they never go to church and spend time with God's people. They never spend time in God's word meditating and praying over it. They never seek to obey the word of God. And I'll show you a liar. Okay, because it's impossible to do that. <clears throat> then in verse 7 uh, through 12, Paul shows that God's law reveals my sin. God's law uh, labels my sin. The law calls certain mental states sinful. It is a sin to indulge in hatred or lust or envy, even if we never physically do these things. You know, Jesus said in Matthew, He said, if you have hatred in your heart toward another without cause, He says, you're guilty of murder. He says, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. Because He says, out of the heart is where these things proceed from. And He says, if you go along and, and these things, this is why spiritual discipline is so important for us. This is why being watchful over our hearts is so important. Being watchful over our minds is so important. Listen, Christian, today in our world and in our culture, it is virtually impossible for you and I to listen to music, watch TV, or watch movies without being exposed to all of this stuff. Okay. We need to be careful what we listen to, be careful what we watch, because it gets into our mind, and we need to be careful that when, we, when these sinful things come into our mind, that we are diligent and we, we, we replace those thoughts with the Word of God. We push those out. And Paul says that these things, uh, it, it's a sin to do these. But here Paul points specifically to covetousness. Covetousness is sinful, and if unchecked, it, it, it instigates even greater evils. We're reminded of a king who stood on his rooftop named David. And he's looking and he sees a woman taking a bath, and her name is Bathsheba. 
And you know what, David? He coveted Bathsheba. And he took Bathsheba. And his covetousness led to adultery. And his adultery led to murder. He had her husband murdered. This is what covetousness, covetousness, the 10th commandment says, you shall not covet. Why does he talk about covetousness so much? Uh, uh, you know, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, Jesus, let me read what he said here. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus pointed this out specifically. He said, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard. Against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We see something. We see some say, you know what? <clears throat> That's a nice car. I want it. So we begin to do whatever we have to do to take it. We see that's a nice house. And say, I want a house like that. And we were willing to do whatever it takes to, to, to own that house. We see a woman, we see a man, and we say, I want that man, I want that woman, regardless of whether they belong to someone else, and say, I desire them and I want them, so we do whatever's necessary. And Jesus says, don't you understand? He said, your life does not consist of the possessions you own. Let me ask you a question this morning. <clears throat> Are you, now don't, you don't have to answer out loud here, because probably, I probably don't want to know the answer to some of these questions. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you know Christ? Have you placed your faith and trust in Him and trusting no one else and nothing else to make you right with God? If you have, let me ask you a question. What would you do today if all your money was instantly gone? If all of it was gone? What would you do if your spouse were instantly just gone? Whether they died, whether they left you, it doesn't matter. What would you do? But especially, what if you lost your money? What if you lost your house? What if you lost your car? What if you lost your job? And many times we turn and we say, God, what am I doing wrong? Why are you mad at me? As if God is obligated to give us those things. But you see what Jesus was saying there. And when Paul points out covetousness, and see, I don't think it's an accident here in chapter 7 that Paul specifically talks about covetousness. Because we have this idea that, yes, I need Christ, but I need all these other things, too, to be fulfilled. What do you need to be fulfilled? If we need anything more than Christ, then you know what? We are committing spiritual adultery. Because we're saying, Christ, you are not enough. On one hand, we, we, we look at the sacrifice of Jesus and we say, I, I believe that, but I also must do that, so that must not be enough. But on the other hand, when we, are, when we do believe that that's enough, then we begin to live our life following Christ, living for Christ, and then we want these other things to, to, to God to bless us with all these other things because we say, yes, because He's not enough. You understand how that works? And so Paul is saying that, you know, the law is good. Here's the thing. Let me summarize what Paul says in verses 7 through 12 in this very short sentence. The law is good. We're not. That's it. It's not the law that fails. And we're going to find this out in chapter 8. Paul's going to talk about this. It's not the law that fails. It's we who fail.
in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, Paul mentions that the law lets us assess our actions, but it also prepares us to hear the gospel. You see, here's the thing. We are called to proclaim the message of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as I said earlier, no one will come and receive Christ as Savior unless they know they need that Savior. Do you know this morning that you need a Savior? Do you know that your good deeds are nothing but like filthy rags before God? Do you know that your keeping the law is impossible? And that as a result of that, you are doomed to be under God's wrath. And here Paul adds that the law itself is holy, righteous, and good. So, and, and see, here's what I think. Paul's saying, look, the law condemns you. The law kills us. But we've died to the law. The law has died to us. But Paul says, but look, don't get the wrong idea here. It's not the law's fault. It's yours. It's your fault. It's my fault. He said, you're the one that, that we are the ones who have failed. And the problem lies in sinful humanity. Or as I heard a preacher say at one time, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. That's the whole thing right there. So the law is holy because it expresses the will of a holy God. The law is righteous because it commands justice. And the law is good because it is just. And the law tells me that lawbreakers can be forgiven. But it points us. In another letter, Paul says that the law is like a schoolmaster, like a tutor. To teach us this that points us there. The law says, look, you can't obey me. The law says, and because you can't obey me, you're going to die. And when it talks about dying, it's talking about an eternity in hell. But the law says, but hey, there's one over there that kept me perfectly. And he has said that if you will trust him, if you will believe in him, he will attribute his keeping the law to you. And this is a wonderful thing right here, because you and I can stand here today if we are truly saved, if we have truly uh, followers of Lord Jesus Christ, and we can know that a holy, righteous God looks down upon me today, and, and He knows that I have, have not kept the law. I have broken His law. He knows that I am a sinful man. He knows that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing, and says, but I love you anyway because of Christ. And I forgive you because of Christ. And I accept you because of Christ. And only because of Christ. So, by faith, we can sing Psalm 1 and say, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk with the world. We can praise the law for teaching us to walk in God's ways. We can praise the law for pointing us to Christ. Yes, we sin. And our habits and our desires uh, sometimes seems to range out of our control. And this is what Paul's going to talk about more in the last, latter half of this, uh, this chapter. But both Romans 6 and Romans chapter 8 teach us to hope for moral and spiritual progress through our union with Christ. You know, one of the most important things I ever learned as, as 
a Christian was this. And I learned it years ago as a young Christian because it's something I greatly struggled with was this. I'm supposed to be doing this, but it seems like the more I try to do what's right, the more I do wrong. The more I try to avoid wrong, the more I do it, which is what Paul's going to talk about later. But then I had this, this, this revelation to me from a, a fellow believer, a more mature believer, who said, he told me, he said, I want you to go home and I want you to get your Bible and I want you to memorize every verse where God tells you to live the Christian life. So I did. I memorized all zero of them. Because it's not there. And that was his point. He says he doesn't call you to live the Christian life. Because you can't live the Christian life. He calls me to trust Christ. Because he can. Isn't that wonderful? So at this moment, let us give thanks to Jesus that He forgives all our failings. He forgives every sin. He forgives every backsliding. He forgives every rebellious act when we look to Him. Okay, remember, by faith alone, to the glory of God alone. Because you see, when I recognize what Paul's trying to tell me here, you can't keep the law and... Follow Christ. You can't do it. It's impossible. The two don't go together. We have to look to the only one who was able to keep the law. And in Christ, we have died to the law. And you see, when it becomes about Christ alone, then it will all be to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you, Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, a sinless life. And Father, I pray that if there's one here this morning, one listening that has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might turn their hearts towards you this morning. And Father, they might confess with their mouth and believe in their heart on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when there was nothing we could do, Jesus came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So may we understand this morning that being a Christian is more than just giving lip service to you. It's more than just attending church every now and then. It's more than just reading your word every now and then, Father. But it's a heartfelt desire to be holy before you, to live for you each and every second of every day. And Father, as we come to this time of the Lord's table, I pray that each one of us would search our hearts this morning. Father, that our hearts would be clean. That we would know for certain that we are saved. That we belong to Christ. Father, as we remember what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And we thank you in his